Hello and welcome to DesignCast, a podcast where I interview a wide range of excellent guests in design and STEAM education to get their unique perspectives. My name is Jason Regan and I use my 20 plus years of experience as a design educator to dig deep into complex issues. This podcast has one simple mission, to create a community of people around the world that are interested in design and STEAM education. Each episode, I chat with guests from all corners of the design world, from classroom teachers to authors and even to educational consultants. We discuss a wide range of topics that we feel are relevant today. I do want to ask you that if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave a review, rate, subscribe, share, or download from your favorite podcasting app. This helps the podcast get discovered by listeners that might not find it otherwise. Also, it helps me to continually define the direction of future guests and episodes. Feel free to drop by my website, www.jasonreagan.ga, to leave me a comment or to sign up to be considered as a future guest on future episodes. Also, don't forget to stop by Anchor and leave me a voice clip that could even end up in an upcoming show. Thanks for listening. So let's get to it. I am so excited to announce the launch of a new podcast network called DNA Podcast Network. The Design Network Alliance, or DNA, was founded by Evo Hanan and myself as a result of DesignCast number 16. We talked all about the need to connect design educators globally. DNA is a collective group of like-minded design educators from around the world. We have one simple mission, to connect design and STEAM educators with each other and with designers that want to make a difference in design education to make it better for future generations. The DNA Podcast Network is a hub for podcasts that cover the topics around design, design and technology, design thinking, STEAM, and STEM education. If you are interested in hearing more great content, head over to www.dnapodcastnetwork.ga today. Click on the thumbnail of the podcast that you want to hear and enjoy. If you have any other podcasts that you enjoy that cover similar topics, please feel free to get in touch with me and let me know so that I can look at adding them to the network. Finally, spread the word. Share with your network and your PLN and use the hashtag DNA Podcast Network.
On this episode of DesignCast, I had the awesome chance to chat with Dr. Mark Mahoney. Mark is an Associate Professor of Technology and Applied Design and Chair of the Technology and Applied Design Department at Berea College. He participated in the Fulbright program as part of his sabbatical a few years ago. He chose to work in China with Nanjing Normal University at the newly developed ITEEA China Center. We talk about work in China and how to deal with reentry into life at home after a life-changing experience. Remember to check the show notes to find out how to contact him. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy this chat with Dr. Mark Mahoney. Welcome back to another episode of DesignCast, and I'm absolutely thrilled to have Dr. Mark Mahoney with me today. How are you, Mark? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. And so we're on opposite ends of the earth, and so I appreciate you getting up early to chat with me. And so can you tell everyone who's listening a little bit about who you are and and what you're currently doing? Sure. I'm Mark Mahoney. I am an associate professor and department chair at Berea College in uh, Berea, Kentucky. Our program here is kind of unique. For those who don't know about Berea College, we are a liberal arts school, one of the few liberal arts colleges that actually have a technology program. In addition to that, we don't charge tuition. We only serve students who can otherwise not afford to go to college, primarily serving the Appalachia region of the United States and some other parts of the U.S. and uh, 10% international. So very unique institution. And I've been very lucky to be able to work here for the last uh, 11 years now, focusing primarily on industrial preparation, technology management. And we used to have uh, some technology education students, but unfortunately with the way that's been going recently, there's been fewer and fewer of those. That's kind of where we're at. That is such a unique model. I think it's fantastic that this institution is set up to help folks who might not normally be able to go to tertiary education. And so I think Mm -hmm. that's really fantastic. And it sounds like you've got a really unique program there. And so a a little bit of introduction to everyone listening of how I met you, which was very uh, recently. (laughs) 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 Basically, I read an article that you had written for the International Technology and Engineering Education Association, ITEA. And uh, it was all about the time that you spent as a Fulbright scholar in, in China. Is that right? Yes, that is right. So can you tell me a little bit about that experience, kind of what led you up to that in case someone's not read that article? Of course. So my experience, and I got to be honest, it was my first sabbatical was coming up. I wasn't really sure what I was going to be doing. I'd never had a sabbatical before. I was a high school, middle school teacher before moving up to this level. And, you know, the idea of a sabbatical was a a very new concept. Uh, When I was looking into it, you know, one of the obvious things was to look in for any kind of grant situation. So I I found the Fulbright. I didn't think I was going to get it. I had no (laughs) misconceptions. I didn't think I was from a big enough university. I didn't think I had any kind of way of getting into that kind of a pool. So I applied out of left field. And during the application process, I just happened to be talking with some people from the ITEA, primarily Ed Reeves and Phil Reed. Both of them have had experience with Fulbright and international study. And obviously they are well familiar with the ITEA. And they let me know about the ITEA China Center, which you know, at this point, I've already written my whole document and I was about to submit it. And I, I was already looking at uh, schools like Nanjing Normal and other technical schools in and around China. And then that was when I found out about the center, which I had no idea. It wasn't public knowledge yet. So when I reached out to them just for some 
you know, direction, they informed me of this opportunity and I just wove it in to what was going to be my application. And again, with no concept of actually being able to get the opportunity. And then when I got the phone call that I was going to go to China, <laughs> I had to very carefully approach my wife and say, honey, I, I love you. I'm going to be going to China. So uh, <laughs> is that okay? <laughs> so she didn't know beforehand that you had done that or? <laughs> oh, oh, she knew I applied, but I think she was in a similar boat. It's like, this is a long shot. You know, the chance of this, you know, this is more just, you know, kind of doing my due diligence. And, and I fully intended to just work here, work in my own labs and update equipment and fix some machines. That That's kind of what I was thinking my sabbatical was going to be. So yeah, definitely it, it flipped things on its head pretty fast. Um, and then a whole lot of things had to go into motion, which were very exciting, but also, you know, nerve wracking. It's very scary, especially if you've not really done a lot of work overseas. And so one of the things I'm super interested in, as folks who are longtime listeners know, I, I, I'm quite connected to China. It's my second home. I'm really, really interested to hear about this ITEA China Center. So when I went, the China Center was just, they just kind of established it with Nanjing Normal and Dr. Gu. And uh, it's Dr. Gu at Nanjing Normal is a fantastic professor, wonderful man to work with, exceptionally busy. I was impressed by his work ethic. I mean, the man does not know a limit to the time of day. And the students understand that. He is, he works directly with the Ministry of Education. I think he's one of the lead uh, investigators when it comes to looking at vocational education, very much involved in the country's education system, primarily with science, technology, and, and vocational education. They just established that. And so when I got there, it was still a very new idea. And I was very happy to be part of that. I've been in contact now. This was obviously, this has been almost four years ago now when I was there three and a half. The center itself is still in development. They're still trying to get the, the space set up and obviously with things that are going on, obviously with COVID too, some things got derailed. But the idea is to train a whole new wave of educators that are coming out of Nanjing Normal to bring this idea of what, you know, especially with the new standards that just came out to a greater impact of education across China. So this very practical hands-on learning approach, which is something that, you know, China has a long history of, but with the new educational system so focused on testing, that kind of ability has, has kind of slipped a little bit. So kind of reinvigorating that aspect of their education model. That is super cool. Again, we were talking beforehand. I've talked to my wife a lot about her experience as a student in the 80s, basically. Mm -hmm. And to hear, you know, from the 80 kids in a class with one heater that had a piece of coal in it <laughs> and yeah. everyone had a job to do, three people sharing a desk, to then hear about how far they've come. Uh, that's, that's the part that's super exciting to me because you can see how quickly that the largest, most populated country in the world can change direction so quickly. It's super exciting to me. And so when you were in Nanjing, what kinds of things did you do? Were you working with education students or what was, mm -hmm. you know, what was your main sort of audience, I guess you could say? Most of the students were graduate students. They were master's and PhD students, very energetic incredibly intelligent, detail-oriented students. I loved working with them, but I also, I had to challenge them a little bit. I noticed very early on, maybe I maybe had similar experiences, but when I came to teach, they they sat, you know, if this is very different than American schools, they, they sat in the front row, all attentive, waiting for me to lecture at them for the duration of the course, and that was it. They were just kind of waiting to receive information. And I had to, these were going to be 
these were going to be education students. So I had to challenge that a little bit. So I found myself very early on, instead of just delivering content, which I'm, I'm not a big fan of lecture to begin with, getting them as much engrossed in the education and as much and participating as much of it as humanly possible. And there were some hiccups with that. There were there was definitely some resistance. So it was really nice to work with this level of education. All my students have been undergrad students at Berea. We don't have a graduate program. It was a different population to work with. Still a, a, an awesome experience. And I, I mm-hmm. had some things which to them seemed very strange. And you know, I was I was surprised by that. And I was kind of, maybe I was, I think the safer word to say, I was more ignorant uh, as far as just the level of, of their education system. Like I, I did my research before going and I tried to get an idea of what I was getting into, but to experience it in real life, it was something that I was not expecting. And I really had to get down to a level where the students could work with me and instead of just kind of receiving information from me. And I guess that's, that's the way to kind of put it. And that was interesting. That was interesting to experience that transition with the students. Um, some of the things that I did with them to challenge that concept. You know, for instance, um, the classrooms were set up in in a pure lecture style. Everything was set up in rows. They had a pulpit at the front where I was higher than the students. It was everything that you think about, you know, an old behavioral model education systems. So early on, I removed it and when I I had to move all the, the desks were all kind of locked together. So one day I went in early, moved all the desks back and put them into a circle and I sat in the circle at the same level of the students. You know, this to me was a very normal thing to sit down with the students and have a a discussion about design and education and curriculum. The students came in and they didn't know what to do. They were confused. Like, why, why, and why are the tables like this? Why are the chairs like this? And they started to move things back. I was like, no, 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 have a seat, sit down, please. There was giggles, there was nervousness, there was, you know, a little, and just a lot of anticipation and started changing, you know, so we've talked about educational theory and educational design, different philosophies, but I don't know if they've ever experienced it. So I started bringing that into the classes and then I started having the students do lessons and different formats and different styles. In addition to, you know, different types of projects and things like that. And the whole environment, you know, I'd like to say from the first month to the second month was like night and day. They gave me, I was really fortunate that they they gave me this beautiful office, this huge office. Uh, this It would be the size of a classroom here. And it was just for me. And I was already... <laughs> feeling somewhat isolated, you know, surrounded by 8 million people to have a conversation with. I moved myself out of the office and they had this they had this student work area that was down at the basement of the building. They had a big conference room table. That's where all the students would congregate. And they had a, a lab right next to it with, you know, CNC machine and some basic tools. And there was a desk off to the side. And I asked, like, who's using that desk? And they said, well, no one. I'm like, all right. And so that's where I put my office and I put my office in with the students and the students, again, they were all kind of confused. Like, like, what are you doing? It's like, you know, like, I want to be here to work with you on these projects and to facilitate, to, ask, to be here to answer questions. And again, it was just a concept that blew their mind. But by the end, you know, they would sit down with me. They would talk to me about graduate experiences and different opportunities in different countries, including the U.S., and what things they could do and how they could work on their projects. And it was fantastic. It was everything that I kind of wanted from the experience. And I I really hope it helped them, their view of education. That's kind of what my goal was with that. But again, it was the first time ever working with graduate students. And it was definitely the first time ever working with students from another country. You know, it was was a whole eye-opening experience 
And I guess, to be honest, the whole time I was kind of afraid. I was, I didn't want to be insensitive to come in thinking that I was, everything that I was doing was right. I was really just trying to expose them to different ways of learning and teaching, but I also didn't, I, I knew I wasn't in America. You know, so I was just, I, I had to be cognizant of that, but without the same time, I, I still wanted to expose him to these different ideals. So I felt always, very, always very nervous about it. You know, I never fully relaxed into it. I completely understand. And I think anyone who's worked in a country that's not their home country probably feels the same way, especially in an educational setting, because there's so many unspoken expectations you come across. And of course, you know, a lot of people only see what's in TV and movies and 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 read what's on the news or, or what have you. I think it's great that I wish everybody had a chance to have that kind of experience, because I think going back to then their classroom that they're more comfortable in, it changes their whole mindset. Did you find that there was a change in the way you worked with students when you got back home? I would definitely say there was. I mean, I've always appreciated the students that I worked with here, but I also came up with the concept. And I think a lot of educators, like I was here in some ways to kind of, you know, this is the glorified version of it. But, you know, when I came to class and especially working with students of, of this population, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come in. I'm going to help elevate them and give them an opportunity out of, you know, their, their current socioeconomic status and make things better. But it really kind of woke me up to say, you know, I need to get down to a level where I'm sitting down with the students where they are. And not that I wasn't doing that already, but I wasn't really understanding where the students were. I wasn't really getting that full snapshot because I, I'm not from where they are. When you're in the same country and you're from the same area, you think, or from relatively the same area, you, you kind of take that for granted, the, the differences, the uniqueness of it. And going to China really kind of opened that up for me. It was like, I know for a fact I am not from where you are and I have, don't have your experiences. So I need to figure out what those are and how they influenced you. And when I brought that back here, I kind of kept that mindset. It's like, no, I, we're all, we might all be from the United States, but I don't know where you're from. And I need to get down to your level and find out where you're from and how I can best help. And it kind of, it kind of helped me re refocus that, you know, it's, it's very easy in the day-to-day -day operations, you know, emails and everything else and just kind of run through it. Student comes in, asks you a question, like, oh, uh, here's the answer, you know, and then you get back to work versus student comes in, asks you a question. And then you start to realize, why are they asking me this question? They could have easily looked that up. What's going on? Let's, let's check in, you know, explain to me more. What's, you know, how things are going, have a seat, take a few minutes. You know, 10 minutes spending with a student can make a very big difference on their day-to-day -day interactions and maybe more even grander. You don't know when to ask the questions. And with the students from China, there was such a sometimes distance, even just language. I had no choice but to kind of get down and try to get to know them better on that more personal level so I could figure out how to help them. Plus, inform myself of what I was really dealing with because I, I didn't know. I didn't grow up in their education system. I didn't know what they were bringing to the table. So I really had had to, you know, really dive in and figure out what was there and what they really wanted. Yeah. And, th and that part was, that is something that I'll, I'll remember. And I still remember all the students and some of them, we still talk on occasion, you know, usually, mm -hmm. you know, WeChat or something. WeChat. Like that. Yeah, sure. It's one of those things that, you know, that it had a big impact on me. 
I think that's fantastic. It's great to hear. I think that we do have a bit of a crisis of empathy when it comes to teachers, and it's not on purpose. (laughs) I think that we think we have empathy, but sometimes we haven't really gotten in the trenches, like you said, and getting down and really tried to find out the root of what's happening. So it's really great that you had that experience. And my experience in China is, is very similar, and I've found that people are very, very thankful to have the opportunity to learn from people different from them, you know? And so I think that's great that you had that experience. And so from that experience, then what did you bring any of in those experiences back to your own university and share those out? Or did you, did you speak at the ITEA or what was sort of the follow-up afterwards? What does the Fulbright ask you to do? Well, the Fulbright itself was, is the Fulbright. I, I have to admit it was, it's a fantastic program. I was not prepared. I expected them just to kind of give me the opportunity and then I have to figure out a lot of things on my own. It was very, very helpful. The only thing that I regret is uh, not spending more time on language skills. I have to be, have to be honest with that because when I applied, they said, you know, you don't need to be proficient in uh, Mandarin. And I was like, okay, great, because I don't have any. This is fantastic. And that was, that, was a, that was a tripping point. But the Fulbright, I mean, from start to finish, they were there the whole time. So not only just in support, but activities. So, you know, again, I was... I was pretty well isolated at first when I got there. You know, they didn't want me to teach right away. Uh, they were going to give me a whole month before I started teaching. And I was like, uh, no, I need I need a distraction. I need, I need to get to work. I need, I need to teach. But they would, they would set up these uh, wonderful cultural experiences. So they took us to, when we got there, we went to the, you know, the Great Wall. We went, we went around Beijing. We went around Shanghai, went to uh, Huangshan and, you know, went up to the, to the, on the mountains. This is all stuff that they did through the Fulbright. They had a lot of activities like that. And from that, I actually was able to meet a lot of other professionals from around the country that were there as well. And we kept in touch and we had this really nice support system. So while we were there, that was basically, you know, just checking in, making sure things were good. And afterwards, just being part of the alumni and answering questions and things like that. It's it's a really it's a wonderful system. And I, I do fully intend to try again when my next sabbatical comes up. And I, I am going to try to go back to China. I was just curious kind of what happened, like once you got back home, Mm. sort of what was the process? Did you have a bit more time off on your sabbatical (laughs) or what? (laughs) What was it? What was the process? No, I got when I got home, I was already a week into my spring term here. So I got right back to work. So I only took half a year. I didn't take a full year. So it was there was there was no stoppage. I, I got back on the January 12th and I came back to class that Monday. There was no no downtime. But during my time back, I had to, you know, obviously I had to reacclimate to all the changes. And professionally, you know, I, I, I wrote the paper and I presented on it. And I'm still in contact with the people in Nanjing. And what I'm what I'm hoping to do is because where everything is going now and I know my understanding is the dean of that school, Dr. Gu, uh, who I was working with, he's quite busy doing a whole national assessment on basically labor education, vocational education for China. And what I'd like to do is I personally would like to get back there and kind of help see that STEM center become a true 
tech engineering education lab. I know the work still needs to be done and you know, I, I'd like to, to be part of that. So that's where I kind of see things going at some point. Uh, I see myself going back there to continue with that work. One of the things I do regret, I spent so much time with the undergraduate students and I'm sorry, the graduate students. I never got a real chance to go to a lot of local schools. I was able to go do a presentation at a few and I worked with a lot of other students. Uh, when I went to Dalian, I got to present again to more uh, university students. All great experiences, but I really wanted to get to, to the public schools to see what that was like and to see the differences and to see how this education model could fit in and benefit those students. And that's kind of where I want to go to next, uh, where I see things going. I'm going to be completely honest. I am not the best researcher in the world. And it's not for lack of trying. It's my, my job here at Berea is primarily teaching. So I spend about 90% of my time focused on that, in addition to mentoring and advising students. Um, and then scholarship is kind of, you know, during winter break and summer break, whenever I can get to it. So it's, it's, it's taken me a little longer than I wanted to, but you know, my sabbatical, my next sabbatical is not that far off. So <laughs> yeah. lining that up. I mean, that's, that's a really cool experience because a lot of folks who are expats, you know, teaching mm -hmm. overseas, rarely, unless they're maybe new in the career or what have you, rarely do they work in public schools. It happens sometimes, but um, in the, for the most part, we're teaching in fee paying private type institutions with pretty well-off families, a lot of diversity, I guess yeah. you could say, within the students. And so having myself for a year taught and at the university level in China as well, I understand I can, I'm, I'm picturing myself, I'm laughing and smiling because I remember all the things you've described when I was doing that too. And so I think it's really neat. And, and I think it'd be really great if more people could do this kind of thing. I think that they would really benefit from that. What can teachers like myself and, and other you know, STEM or STEAM or design teachers do to possibly help this whole project? Is, is there some things we can do to maybe help with that? I think there's a lot of ways to do it. But uh, the one of the things that, again, I've kind of alluded to this before, it's understanding what that education system really wants. It's easy to come from an American system and think like, you know best and to walk in and say, this is what needs to be done. I'd travel more cautiously. I was like, what is it that you want from your education system? What is it that you want from these uh, STEM or STEAM experiences for the students? Are you looking just for test scores? Are you looking for actual abilities, things that are hard to measure? Do you want problem solving ability? Do you want creative thinking? Now we talk about design, and, you know, we, and again, our program design is in our name um, and we really focus on the idea of iterative design and developing your designs. And, you know, it's not a one stop, you know, one and done kind of a thing. And unfortunately, a lot of education systems that focus on testing and standardization usually end up being one and done. You know, it's like meet this proficiency. Great. Move on to the next one. It might be slightly uphill battle, to be honest. Because, you know, if, especially, you know, but with China's focus on the test and, you know, K through 12 education and then America's focus on standardization and assessment, you don't have a lot of room for what I would consider is probably true education or true learning. You're so, so busy just trying to do well on these examinations that doesn't leave a lot of room for personal growth or even personal development or exploration. There's no room for failure. And that's really hard on a, on a kid. 
you know, even you know, when I say kid, I mean, I'm even including young adults. I mean, that's a hard, hard expectation that, you know, if you fail, it's over. And we know as adults through experience, failing is part of life. You have, that's, that's part of learning. That's part of growing and we can accept it as adults, but that's even more important for a kid. And I think that's one of some of the beauty of that STEM and STEAM education is, and I don't want to say failure in the way of like as a great, but trying something and having it not work and then trying something again and seeing how and learning from it and experimenting with it. That's, that's the beauty of it. You really need to give them the opportunity to experience that. And I don't know room in the in these prevalent educational models without substantive change I, I don't know how you do it the students can of uh, they're required to take these courses I think that's that's the argument to be made that's the experience to kind of jump onto that's the kind of thing that will really I mean <laughs> really help the students not only just you know intellectually but you know even emotionally just it's okay it's okay that it didn't work let's try it again how can we make it better let's improve because that's really what life is it's not about getting mm -hmm. it's about figuring out how to how, all right that was that was stupid what what next <laughs> Let's, let's not do that again. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're right. The educational system in China particularly is a behemoth. It's, it is, <laughs> it has so many layers and so many traditional aspects to it. But I think if there were one place that could, could write the ship in a sense, I think they could because of the determination, I think that they have to be the best they can be throughout. Mm -hmm. So I, I agree with you. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a lot of change. Uh, teachers, as you probably were aware in Asia particularly, but especially in China, are highly valued and yes. highly respected. And so I, I think that's something that's a benefit as well, is that if teachers are saying this needs to change, that the parents will listen, you know, and I think the other folks will listen. So I, I agree with you, man. I think it's it's not an easy battle and we may not see it in our lifetime, but I do think if anyone can do it, they can. They can. Yeah, and <laughs> they know, can do it quickly too. Absolutely, man. They can turn on a dime if if necessary. And so, man, that's that's super cool. So it sounds like you want to kind of go back and have another experience there, maybe following up and then working more in public schools and, and that kind of thing. And that's super cool. And I want to follow that. I want to hear more about that if, in fact, that comes around maybe, you know, in a few years or, or what have you. So, uh, Mark, if people want to ask you more about this or, or anything about your program that you have there at your college, what's the best way to get in touch with you? The, the best way is, unfortunately, I, is, is email. It's probably the easiest <laughs> way to get up to me. It's the one thing that I, I'm, I wish I wasn't attached to it as, as much as I am. But my email address, mark underscore Mahoney berea.edu. That's probably the most straightforward way to get me. Okay. I'll make sure that um, that's included in the show notes. So anyone who can, who might wants to, you know, reach out and talk a little bit more about this process with you and people, sometimes they don't want to commit to working in an international school or a private school overseas for two years. Cause that's normally the kind of contract time, but to hear about that this is a possibility. I think there are people who might actually be more willing. And so maybe they can reach out to you if they're interested. And so I have one other question for you, which I often ask my guests, and that is mm -hmm. if you could recommend one book, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be educational. It can be any kind of book that everyone stops right now and read. What would that be? There's a lot of books. <laughs> so <I'm trying laughs> Yes, <to> there are. <laughs> I, I've been reading quite a few and I'm trying to think for, I'm at work, so I don't have my personal oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I would say the one book that that I've I really enjoyed, and it's something that obviously has a direct 
connection to Berea because she actually has an institute here. But I would say Bell Hooks, All About Love. It's a, it's a book I read after I was in China. And I, I'm going to, this is going to be honest, when I, when I returned, the adjustment period was rough. It took me some time to get used to China and being away from my family and the expectations and, you know, trying mm-hmm. to do the best job I could, but also being in a place that, you know, this wasn't like moving, you know, from New England to Kentucky. This was, <laughs> this is a complete, very completely different version of my experience and a whole way, way of life. And then coming back from that, I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I got, I kind of got depressed. It got me pretty good. So then mm-hmm. I was looking for ways to kind of help and uh, look at bigger picture items. And that book is it, a really quick read. It's a good read. I like the way Bell Hooks writes. She's a phenomenal author, but it really, it spoke to me on levels that were, it brought up things that I kind of, ignored for a fair part mm-hmm. of life. And then I had to start addressing them. So it's a good book. That's awesome. I'll make sure to include that too. I have a good reads list that I put all the books people recommend on. And so I'll make sure that that is on there as well. And I will say this, Mark, I, I found reverse culture shock every time I've come back and had any time in the US, I found that it's really much more difficult than actually the culture shock you get going to a new place. You're not alone. Yeah, that's that's the thing. I wish there was a little more preparation. <laughs> there, yeah. there was no warning for that. But yeah, I mean, like I said before, it's like I, I got through it and I'm looking forward to doing it again. And I'm hoping that if I do get to go again, uh, I probably will try to do the whole year and I'm probably going to try to bring my family with. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a bigger challenge. <laughs> it is. But I will tell you, as a person who has my my children in a third culture, in a sense, it's priceless and, and it's a great experience and they will never forget it. So if you have the chance, I think you should go for it. It sounds great. Yeah, I definitely will. My son still talks about the dumplings. <laughs> <laughs> I bet he does. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's too funny. Dumplings are something that they're a little hidden jewel. I'll tell you what. So Mark, really, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. I know that teaching right now is even more complicated with the current situation we're in. So I do appreciate you taking time out to chat with me. And I really, really look forward to hearing more about your journey with China and other places as you continue to find these opportunities. You know, it's been wonderful talking to you about this. And <laughs> I really appreciate the opportunity. Like, you know, this is, I'm happy to, to share this and any other experience I have because you know as, as much as it may seem I'm just I'm just another teacher I still feel like a high school teacher just at the, the wrong school sometimes <laughs> like what I am I doing feeling, here man I know the feeling well I really appreciate it thank you Mark thank you I hope you enjoyed that episode of DesignCast. I'm Jason, your host, and I produced and created this podcast. If you have any input, I would love to hear from you. And I look forward to seeing you again really soon. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. We will see you on the next episode.